morning. How are you? It's just so bright and early here. I know. <laughs> it's the broadcast podcast. We won't point any fingers at who was at begging for coffee, but <laughs> now we're all, I think, on the we road to caffeination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have with us today in the studio someone I've been trying to get on for a while. Let me just say this was an example of she persisted. Yes. I freaking persisted. <laughs> Sarah in Amarado, she's running for state rep. She's a business owner. And I'm so excited to have you here because we really want to talk about stuff. Like with a with capital you. S. Yeah, the big stuff. <laughs> so welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for persisting and having me on. <laughs> yeah, I am nothing if not persistent. It's what Kim does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why we love her. Yeah. So you are part of, I think it's fair to call it a wave of women who, after the results of the 2016 election, decided you know, we can, we can wring our hands and say what happened or we can get to work and figure out how to get more women mm. running for office and how to get them more involved in the process. Is that a fair assessment? You correct me where that's wrong. Yes. So I say that my, the great civic awakening mm. of 2016, I was just maybe ahead of the curve, um, by a couple months because mm. I am a product of Coro Women in Leadership. Uh-huh. And during my time there, we hosted a panel um, that featured women who had served in elected office or were currently serving in elected office. And it ranged um, by party and generation and even thoughts and policy issues and different levels of government. And all of them shared this narrative of just having to overcome so much to get elected. And then once they were elected, they still experienced so much misogyny and sexism in their role. And looking at that and looking at the numbers specifically in Pennsylvania and how women were represented at all levels of government, we were like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a problem. And there's really no good place to go to be informed about what's happening at a local and state level when it comes to politics. So yeah. that's kind of when uh, my co-founder, Olivia Benson, and I started this along with um, some of our cohort and women in leadership. And we we were like, okay, this, this has to change. And then it was put on hyperdrive because of the results mm-hmm. of the general election in 2016. Yeah. And so when you say because I know Pennsylvania has a terrible representation as far as women. I was going to say, what representation? Tell people how bad it is because <laughs> it's it's bad. Oh, yeah. So there is a national organization called Representation 2020. And their most recent report puts Pennsylvania 49th when it comes to women in elected office. And that looks at local, state, and national positions. Why do you think that is specifically in Pennsylvania? Um, there's a handful of reasons. So one is this idea of protecting incumbency. Mm-hmm. So, and you see that for the good and for the bad, I think, in, mm-hmm. especially in Western Pennsylvania, right? That you see candidates who've been around a long time who are doing good things, but other ones who are maybe not doing mm-hmm. such good things. And government has just gotten really expensive. It's mm-hmm. it's very much a pay to play type situation um, at all levels now. So it, you know, you're either self-funding a campaign or you have access to a lot of capital or you're ingrained in a structure that can give you access to that capital. And then it's also the way that the government is structured, right? If you have, if you're a single mom and you have to 
you know, you're running for state representative, for example, and you have to be in Harrisburg 100 days out of the year and away from your family, like that's not necessarily the best model of government and the way that it's structured to incorporate a diversity of experiences. Yeah. So those are some reasons off the top of my head. Yeah. And so when you we talk about um, the misogyny that women face before, during, and after <laughs> running mm-hmm. for office, is it the kind of blatant things that you can, that's definitely misogyny, that's definitely sexism, or is it the more subtle things that you kind of think afterwards, was that really a sexist comment he just made? Was that really, because that's my sense of it, is that it's the more subtle sort of pervasive, constant kind of, you know, calling into question what kind of mother you are, how are you going to balance your mm-hmm. home life mm-hmm. with your elected duties? They, Men just don't get asked those questions. I think, though, it's a it's a combination of those mm-hmm. things because, yeah, I think it is those subtle questions. Mm-hmm. But I think there's very uh, there's a lot of emboldened men out there <laughs> right that now, will right. just say, especially right now, yep. but in general, they mm-hmm. kind of just say whatever they feel like because this structure has supported them for so long, and they don't yeah. want other people in in the boys' club. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think, Sarah? I mean, I think that with with anyone when you're human and you're surrounded by a homogenized group of Mm -hmm. people you don't necessarily know how to behave when someone different Mm -hmm. uh, is introduced to your group so if this behavior has been okayed and reaffirmed over and over again then of course they're going to hold these certain behaviors that um to women are going to be you know are going to be perceived as or are misogynist and are sexist. Um, is this that diversity in having different people around the table? Um, and I also think you bring up a good point in the role in media, right? So when they do an interview with a woman candidate, they're asking about family and how you're mm-hmm. going to balance. And, um, you know, they, they'll often comment on their appearance. You know, the more that we speak up, the more that we can change the way that people report on women in all levels, um, in all industries. So what made you decide specifically to run? Oh, geez. Uh, That's a huge thing to undertake. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not, even once you made the decision, there's still a lot of, yeah, yeah, steps to actually start the process. Mm -hmm. So it was, I actually was taking a look at our, uh, the person that represents me in Harrisburg and, realize that, you know, it, we didn't share the same values mm-hmm. and that the, the district has changed so much, um, as far as moving to a more progressive mindset. So I actually started out just asking, um, progressive women who lived, who are my neighbors to run. I was like, hey, I think that like mm-hmm. you're a small business owner or like, hey, you're, you know, you, you've held elected office before, like you would be great. And like trying to like pump these women up to run and we would sit and talk and they were like, well, wh- why don't you run? Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> That's not I about me right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, my role is to uh, inspire and support other people who want to run, um, but, you know, it, they planted the seed and then starting to look at, like, I'm a pragmatist at the end of the day. So I, you know, made a list and I was like, okay, how much is this going to cost? Who is in my network? Um, 
what does it mean if I win? What does it mean if I lose? And you know, what I does decide, it mean if you win or lose? I mean, what did you ooh. what did you come up with? Yeah, Not to interrupt you, like? but that's an yeah. interesting statement yeah. you said. So, you know, if I if I win, then I am a state representative, and I get to take the unique voices that exist in our district. I get to listen to the folks, and I get to translate that into action in Harrisburg and really make it. Uh, make them a part of budget decisions and voting decisions and a part of the legislation that I would introduce. And, you know, you don't need to necessarily organize and protest in front of my office to to gain access to yeah. that power. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really um, a good reason to do it, mm-hmm. it's like people power. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the day, I, my business and, in, in I work primarily with advocacy and nonprofit organizations. So it was really a lot of a lot of campaigning uses those those skill sets that I use with these different groups. And you know, my goal in life is not to be a politician. My goal in life is to do good and to make an impact and help as many people as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. So if this if this inspires one other person to run one other woman who's like, oh my gosh, I don't need a specific last name or deep pockets to really step up and run, uh, then it was worth it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at the end of the day, we're going to act like we're going to activate mm-hmm. a base that doesn't necessarily feel mm-hmm. included in the political process. And that's important. Civic engagement is important. And if we can get people, if I can use my candidacy to activate people in the long term, that's extremely rewarding to me. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I've read a lot about women who are deciding to run for office, that a reason that they hesitate or that they decide not to is because of the extremely negative campaigns that go on, that women get the brunt of that more mm-hmm. so than male candidates. So we can even look down at, to the sound of their voice, even down to the sound of their mm-hmm. voice, you know, how they wear their hair, what mm-hmm. they dress, how mm-hmm. they dress. So, you know, that it can be very difficult and oh, very yeah. nasty. We can look at our own recent U.S. Senate race that mm-hmm. um, the outcome of that. So is that how do you brace for that? How do you tell women who are planning to office for to run for office this is something you might deal with. Here's how to handle it. Or is it a, you kind of have to see it as it comes, like it's a mm-hmm. case by case situation, depending on the opponent or the race or the issues. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was definitely something that I thought about. And, you know, part of the pragmatic reasons of doing it too, is that, you know, I'm at the point where I run my own business so I can make my own schedule. I don't have a partner. I have I. um, own my house. So I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. But in doing that audit of networks, realizing that I have a really good group of people around me mm-hmm. that can brace me for these things mm-hmm. and can be um, a kind of like your nod. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a non judgmental space. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you know, I have that network to, to fall back on when I'm having days where I wake up and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. Or, you know, someone says something and I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but at the end of the day, I have been through things that are far more 
traumatic Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. someone commenting on my hair or my (laughs) voice. And so to me, that's that's not, you know, that's, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm good. Roll with those punches. That's cute. There's so many more terrible things going on in the world and not to say that it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. But you put it in perspective. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the it. issues that really made you want to run that you feel <clears throat> that here in Pennsylvania we should be focusing on differently or in a better way? Or mm-hmm. what are some legisl- – you talked about introducing legislation. Yeah. What are some things that you would like to bring to the forefront mm-hmm. in the local government? So I I just had my campaign kickoff earlier this week, and I led my speech with a story about – me growing up and having a father that was addicted to opioids. So he was prescribed them before I was actually born and, you know, became addicted. And we found out when I was a teenager and it set off this cycle of, of having to move around and housing insecurity, food insecurity, and, you know, ultimately me leading to like moving out of the house. And, you know, I ended up putting myself through school and it was, it was everything you know, for me, I was able to overcome that. Um, and unfortunately he wasn't and he OD'd in my early twenties. And so when, when I think about that and I think about his circumstance where he was well-educated, we had a good job, we lived in the suburbs and had a, you know, a middle-class life and he had all the resources at his disposal and he could still not overcome this, that there are so many people with far less who are, who are suffering with this mental illness, um, and this addiction. And when we're, I feel like when we're introducing legislation or programs at a state level, they're very, um, single issue. So they're, they're, they're treating a symptom of what's going on. So I think, you know, the deployment of Narcan, um, especially with Pittsburgh police and the different businesses in the area so that, um, Narcan is what you can administer someone once they OD and it literally brings them back from the dead. Um, I think that's an amazing first step, but there's not necessarily, when we talk about healthcare, right, you can't necessarily get this person into, um, long-term rehab, you can't get them access to uh, mental health care, which is maybe what caused them to turn to heroin or opioids to begin with. Um, you know, oftentimes it's an act of desperation. So we need to make sure that there's good, not only that there's jobs, but there's well-paying jobs um, and affordable housing. So it's all systemic. So I think about, you know, how are we looking at this crisis as holistically as possible and not just different you can't just treat a symptom of it and expect it to get better like we're just putting a band-aid on a gushing wound so that's that's one thing that's actually really close to me um personally and then also when I talk about wanting to see more um women in office and more diversity in office I think things like paid family leave, for example, is going to um, equalize uh, women and men in the workforce. I think that's, you know, a conversation that, um, or legislation that can help 
you know, lessen the gender pay cap. It can allow um, women to take on, you know, keep their jobs and and not necessarily um, have to to choose whether they want to be, you know, have a family or keep their career. You know, I find it really interesting when you were talking more about like the holistic idea of, you know, having affordable housing and well, well well-paying jobs. And it reminds me of my grandfather. Okay. So he was in World War II. He came back, no college education, starts working as a vacuum cleaner salesman, like literally door to door (laughs) selling vacuums. Okay. My grandmother didn't work. They lived in the suburbs in a big house. They put two kids through college. He got a company car every like five years. There was money in the bank. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, what happened that yeah. they don't remember? Suddenly they have selective amnesia, right? Yeah. That that there was a time when there was affordable housing and there were good paying jobs mm-hmm. and you could exist in a middle class life. And for whatever reason, why do you think there's this mentality now of that feeling like you don't deserve that? Because that's how I feel when I look around and I see people talking about raising the minimum wage to a living wage right. or the idea of having housing be affordable where not right. 30 or 40% of your week- monthly income is mm-hmm. going towards right. your rent and because someone, people can't even afford a down payment anymore. Right. And that someone who works at a fast food restaurant yes. doesn't deserve to make a living wage. Right. If there's and something somehow deficient. I mean, he was a vacuum cleaner salesman. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't an, a big executive in a, you know in some big company. Yeah. So and can I just interject and say, I learned something new about you every podcast. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, have I love that. Stories. Oh my God. <laughs> I know you do. And I, and I, you know, yeah. I, I just, it, it always brings me back to thinking about that because what happened mentality yeah. wise in this country that within the last 40 or 50 years, we've gone from that was a completely acceptable life right. where you were able to put and the college too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean the college mm-hmm. situation, let's be real. You know, my dad's a chiropractor. So he went through school. I mean, this wasn't a trade school. They put him through school. Yeah. And the fact that they were able to do that, you know, and my grandmother never worked. Right, with one parent working. Yeah. I mean, what what do you think has happened that we look at that as this fantasy that right. oh that it's can in the never past be again. You can never have that again. Because to me that's that's how you build a healthy, strong society is when as many people as possible mm-hmm. can live happy lives, safe, happy, healthy lives. Mm-hmm. So what what are your thoughts on that? Well I won't claim to be an expert on this either, but I know that during that time, during our grandparents' time, there was a lot of public investment, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of public investment in building housing and mm-hmm. subsidizing housing and huge investments in public education and public health. Mm-hmm. So we've strategically going. <laughs> <laughs> we've yeah. disinvested um, yeah. at all levels um, in those those needs. So we've been kind of chipping away at this foundation that can really elevate people beyond poverty. And, you know, what we did during that time, we had some very racist policies Mm -hmm. too. So really there were a lot of, you know, I know my family benefited from it as well, but there were a lot of families that didn't. And I have this conversation with family members, like they're, you know, of, of course our, my grandparents, um, were able to to purchase a house, so they were able to have equity, and now, mm-hmm. you know, that equity was able to be um, sold and passed down generationally. So now we're at even um, greater income disparities. So I think it's a lot of disinvestment 
in that that public um, the public good. Mm-hmm. And I think when we say the public good, I think the, the what's problematic is a lot of people are equating that with the scary S word of the idea of socialism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we get people to think about socialism? in a positive way, because you think about it, you know, I tell people, well, your police, Mm -hmm. it's not socialized. The military is socialized. Mm -hmm. You know, Medicare is socialized. I mean, these are things that are important, our road systems, you know, how do we get people to change the way they talk about these big concepts? Or even the way they perceive them. Right, right. Yeah. Understanding that as somebody that's running, what are your thoughts on how you can change the framework of how you speak about topics in order to broaden the people that are going to hear them in a different way? So I think it's always putting people at the center. Mm -hmm. So people don't care about your your five-point plan necessarily. They care how it's going to impact their Mm day-to-day. So, you know, a lot of a lot of people have said, well, you know, if you get elected, how are you going to work with folks up in Harrisburg if you're kind of this <laughs> super progressive? And and I say, well, you know, my, my policies are about translating it to the people that it's going to impact. And when you start to break down healthcare, for example, and you're saying we can introduce a single payer system. And what that means is that you don't have to now choose between paying your rent and going to the doctor this month. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people in that situation who mm-hmm. put off or even put off their own health care for their kids. Absolutely. Um, and that, you know, relates to environmental issues and all of these other things. Um, but if you, if you frame it, not like single payer and this is what it is, but rather here's why it would be a great fit for your life and who you are and your value wouldn't necessarily be tied to your employment because, you know, you're in this state, you can get fired at any point pretty much for any reason. And then, and then what? Right. And then there's your healthcare. And I think when we tied in uh, healthcare Mm -hmm. to employment, uh, that to me was like, that's a fundamental problem that it's very going to be very difficult for us to extricate ourselves from that you know people identify with their jobs and also it's part of if they lose their jobs they lose a big chunk of mm-hmm. you know their well-being you know how do we that's a whole other See, conversation but, but I always found that interesting because many moons ago I worked in healthcare for all PA which was mm-hmm. an organization mm-hmm. it's still in existence but it was for single parent this is going back probably about 10 years and I always got frustrated because for me it was like why aren't more small businesses getting on the bandwagon of single right. pair because this would benefit, would benefit them, them economically because right. at the end of the day, people are all about their pocketbook, right? Yeah. And I think if you can go to small businesses, and I don't mean small as in necessarily mom and pop shops, but small businesses in the sense that they have a few employees or they may have 10 or 15 employees, but they're not really big, so they can't really afford this healthcare mm-hmm. that they're providing. Right. You know, why... Why do you think there's not been that sort of movement in local politics to try to attract those types of business leaders to this movement? Because I feel like that's going to be a way to get a foot in the door in terms of getting funding. Yeah, because those are people who have voice and who are, yeah. you know, that politicians Prominence look to as bellwethers, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think we have 
elected officials in southwestern PA who are strong advocates for it. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think, Yeah. Right. And You're I like, get, no one cares. And, <laughs> yeah. Right. Or it Short just hasn't been, right. It just hasn't been an issue that they prioritize. But you know, recently the the state party has has put that as one of their priority points moving forward, which is um, extremely reassuring mm-hmm. um, and exciting to see. Um, with and I, I also think with this conversation, you brought up an excellent point is that I do, I've worked with startups and um, small tech organizations and startup nonprofits. And I think about these folks who are working their full-time job and mm-hmm. then in the mornings and the evenings, yep. they're trying to build this new and exciting thing that could benefit a lot of people. Yep. And they have to be tied to their job and primarily because of health care okay. mm-hmm. and taking care of their family. So imagine the the innovation and the potential that we could release if we offered this kind of universal um, access to health care and made it really a human right instead of something that, you know, is tied to employment. I also find it interesting it earlier in the conversation you were you were saying you know that people refer to you as super progressive and i and i think that's interesting because how the word progressive in my mind has gotten yeah. skewed over the past yeah. really 15 years right yeah. ever a since lot, it's never so much the way the word liberal got yeah skewed, because you know, a lot of what i think you you're running on you're a pragmatist mm-hmm. and i think a lot of these are just very pragmatic middle of the road yeah, sort of policies issues. Yeah. yeah and and i just once again i just find it fascinating how far we've been pushed to one side of the pendulum when something like the idea of a a healthcare for all system is Mm -hmm. considered a very progressive idea in 2017 when every other industrialized nation (laughs) has something like this already in place. And we are failing on so many levels of healthcare if you look at statistics, including maternal care, which is Mm -hmm. something that they were considering what making under the new administration, making that like an optional thing for, yeah. you know, healthcare providers. I'm not going to pay for your mammogram. And if, yeah, <laughs> and if that doesn't tell you that more women need to be in politics, I don't know what yeah. the hell would. Right. I mean, right. we have one of the highest infant and maternal mortality rates right. in in the developed world. Mm-hmm. Like, that's crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this may be an unpopular opinion, that's but okay. I believe that <laughs> our current president, he ran a hope campaign he set a vision and he said, I am going to make America great again. And mm-hmm. then he let all everyone in America imagine what that meant mm, for them, for them yeah. personally, and really adopt their own personal vision of what that made. Um, and so it was that that language and that visioning that I that people gravitated towards and it didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily all in for a wall. They weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, appalled by the sexism they were just like my life is not Mm. great and i want it to be great and there's someone who's saying it can be you're giving me chills Mm. and i'm having a moment over here like imagine if you just had a different vehicle for that message it would be a lot of it's a good point of the campaign that barack obama ran was hope and change and he Mm -hmm. really emphasized that right that's a good point yeah sarah you should really run for yeah. something. <laughs> Get yourself some red hats. Yeah. Just honey, yeah. Oh. Made in China. Oh, geez. Uh. Yeah. Imagine imagine if we had the power of that messaging with, like, good intentions. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Do you think that's where Hillary went 
wrong then? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I don't want this to turn into let's dissect the election, but do you, do you think in a sense that she was playing a game met, meant for maybe a 2006 kind of a campaign instead of a 2016 and she was trying to be too real? Yeah. <laughs> like, but that's nice and all, but here's actually yeah. what we need to do. Do you think yeah. she could have benefited from creating her own broad vision? I think so. And I think even with our campaign, right, I'm with her. It was very much about the individual and who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. it opened up this more like critique of, interesting. well, if I'm with her, I'm also, I take all of the things that, that come with her and the decisions that she's made. Whereas mm. with Donald Trump, it was very much about make America great again. So it was this vision. It was this big, um, this big net that, that people could kind of carve out what that meant. You weren't necessarily tied to him. I see. But yeah. you were, mm, you could concept. attract yourself to yeah. that, the, the, I guess the broader party, but that, that vision that he was creating. How do we harness that energy and keep that sense of, you know, we don't want to, we want to move things forward. How do you, I mean, that's the trick, right? That's what mm-hmm. you're, you you and other candidates like you're trying to do right now, harnessing that whatever, anger, enthusiasm, mm-hmm. you know, sense of displacement. Um, how do we then talk about moving forward? If you're, if you're looking at what went wrong, how do you learn from it? How do you then take those lessons? Because I think we're still kind of figuring out what the lessons actually are, right? Yeah. This is a great way to sort of end this conversation. I know. Oh. I know. No pressure. Ahead, just Sarah. figure it all out. Give, about give minutes, us your so. best answer. <laughs> uh, so for me, it's, it's, and I'll go back to it. It's it's setting a vision for what what kind of what kind of future do we want to live in, and what kind of future do we want for our kids and future generations. So you know when I look at the sh- decisions and votes that are being made at a state level, every decision that's made, it's one step towards whatever vision that they have in their, these elected officials have in their minds. And when you think about if these are the steps that they're taking towards their vision, I'm like, what's the vision? What's the end game? Like, where are you guys trying to go? You know? So yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that sort of sums it up though, in a sense that there is a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. I think women like you that are making such an impact on the local level is exactly where this needs to start because the grassroots movements, as we've seen, are effective and they do work Mm -hmm. and you need that groundswell in order to carry, you know, us to the next level. Mm -hmm. And so we just want to thank you so much for not only being a part of the broadcast, but for the work that you're doing in the communities to try to make as many lives better as you can. So thank you. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad we finally aligned the stars so you could you could Yay. make it. This has been really yeah. good and inspirational and when you when you'll have to come back and yeah. talk about Aww. your plan. Thank yeah. you guys. Awesome. Great. show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.